Mark 12 is where we're going to be this morning, and we're going to be in verses 28 through 34. And this is what it says. And one of the scribes came up and heard him disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, he asked him, Which commandment is most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Let me pray and ask for God's help. Father, I pray that you would please, of course, Bless the preaching of your word this morning. Apply its eternal truths to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would please help us to see the importance of these commands that Jesus said are the most important of all. Help us to learn the lesson that you have here for us. Open eyes to see, open hearts to believe. Draw sinners to yourself and please build up the saints. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen titled the message this morning, The Greatest Commandment. The Greatest Commandment, because that's indeed what Jesus said these are. At this point in the text, we now find ourselves in the middle of Holy Week. Yes, we're right in the middle of it. You see, the, the, the narrative of Mark slows way down, doesn't it? Because we're only in chapter 12, and last I checked, Mark has 16 chapters, and so he slows way down for this week, getting to, into a lot of the details of Holy Week. For some recap, Jesus entered Jerusalem at the beginning of this week, at his triumphal entry, as you might recall. Then, for the second time in his ministry, he cleansed the temple, chasing out the money changers, overturning their tables, driving out those who sold pigeons and animals, not allowing anyone to cross through right there as a shortcut, keeping the temple holy. In doing so, of course, he temporarily restored the proper design for the temple as a place of prayer and a place of devotion for all the nations. Though the chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees had all shown their disapproval of Jesus and his ministry from the beginning of his ministry, he's now in the belly of the beast, you could say, there in Jerusalem. Because the temple was located there, it was the central location of religious life for the Jews. And it was, it was also the location of the Sanhedrin. If you don't recall what the Sanhedrin is, it's the, the Jewish court system. Sanhedrin was made up of both Pharisees, Sadducees. There was always proceeding over 
the court a chief priest. And these men were against Jesus. Now, from the beginning of his ministry, he'd exposed their piety as hypocrisy, and he'd exposed their theology as heresy. Because of his authority over demons, over disease, over death, and through his authoritative teaching and preaching, he had amassed a a large following of people, Jesus did. And the religious elites were therefore losing some of their reputation, losing some of their power, losing their grasp that they had enjoyed having over the people. And all these things and more are the reason why we find ourselves here in our text today with Jesus being questioned yet again. Yet again, they try to trap him. Now, throughout this chapter so far, they've been testing Jesus, trying to trap him. The text says that again and again. Now, though they've been testing him, he's been besting them. He always wins. Now, we don't see it in Mark's gospel. There's, uh, there was a meeting that happened before this scribe comes and asks this question today. Mark doesn't tell us about that meeting, but Matthew does. Aren't you thankful for four gospels? We get four angles at Jesus' life. Thank the Lord for that. In Matthew's presentation of the same account, in Matthew 22, 34, it says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So once the question of the Sadducees was given and then Jesus bested them, and I'm so thankful God showed you wonderful truth, Butch, through last, sermons, through last week's sermon. Um, now, after that questioning and Jesus refuting them, Jesus besting them, there was a meeting that was held. More than likely, a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Pharisees, Sadducees, together, saying, what can we ask him this time? He's beat us here, he's beat us here, he's beat us here. What can we say this time? Now, if it was a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which it could have possibly been, very likely, the Sadducees and Pharisees didn't agree on everything. The Pharisees held that the entire Old Testament was inspired scripture of God. The Sadducees, however, only held that the first five books of Moses were inspired by God. But that means that they have something in common. That means they both then believe that the the first five books of Moses, the law, the Pentateuch, the Torah, they both believe that's inspired scripture. And in those five books is where we find God's commands. And so they come together, they gather together, they reconvene in their final attempt to try to trap him. Again, this time focused on the law. Now, they send another one from among them. We see in our text here. Mark calls him a scribe. What's a scribe? A scribe is a student of the law. This man would have been an expert in the law. As a scribe, he would have also had the occupation of writing the law down, making copies of it. They were sometimes hired to write legal documents and things like that too. So here comes this scribe. Matthew calls him a lawyer. Not the same as our lawyers, just an expert of God's law. And Matthew, though Mark doesn't say it, Matthew specifically says he was sent to test 
Jesus. If all we had was Mark's, it almost seems like this man is just genuinely curious. Lord, which is the best commandment? And his answer is way different from anyone else's that we've seen after that. His response to Jesus, rather, I should say, is different from anyone else we've seen, which we're going to talk about in a second. But if all we had was Mark, we might think this was just an inquisitive scribe. Maybe truly curious if Jesus is the Messiah. But Matthew tells us, no, no, no. He was sent to test him. And what's he say? Verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, seeing that he had answered them well, asked him, which commandment is most important of all? So what exactly were they after with this question? How was this a trap? Which commandment is the most important? There doesn't seem to be any tricks here. Well, like I mentioned, they could all agree that the first five books of Moses were um, inspired. And so if Jesus somehow, they were hoping Jesus would answer in such a way that showed that he somehow believed that his teachings were above the teachings of Moses. If he somehow answered in such a way where he either degraded the law, put his words above the law, then they could do a major rug pull on him and all his ministry, all he'd done and said, turn the people against him. They would pronounce him as blasphemous, a heretic, totally wrong, and they would say, now we got him because he messed this up in some way This law that maybe we all think is great, he doesn't think is so great, or he's putting his commands above God's. This is going to be very interesting how he answers. We think we've got him with this one too. Well, as a footnote, there's there's a whole history behind the rabbis debating these sort of questions concerning the law. In fact, the rabbis had determined that there were 613 commands, 613 commands, based on the law, either direct commands from God in that law, and when I say the law, again, the five books of Moses, or commandments that they pulled out of their interpretation of that law, okay? So not just biblical commands, but interpretations of the the law that had been elevated to the point of commands, Of those 613 commands, they had concluded that 248 of them were what we would call affirmative commands, and 365 were negative commands. What do I mean? The 248 would have been commands that said, do this. The 365 would have been ones that said, don't do this. That's why we say affirmative and negative. They'd broken them up like that. Well, they further argued about which of them were heavier laws and which one were lighter laws, which one were more important, which ones were less important. Jesus even brings this up when calling the Pharisees hypocrites about their tithing. You might recall he had said that you tithe of dill and mint and cumin, but you forsake and neglect the weightier matters of the law which he said were justice, mercy, faithfulness. So yes, there is this um, weightier matters that God cares about, 
weightier. Some are weightier than others. All of God's commands are important, of course. But Jesus had called them out once and said, yes, you, you, you tithe from even the herbs that you grow in your own gardens. You take 10% of dill and cumin and things like that, and you tithe little herbs while you completely neglect things like righteousness, justice, mercy. So the rabbis discussed these things, debated them. They love to debate these things. All legalistic people do love to figure out which rules are the most important rules. Why? Because you can't follow them all. You cannot obey every single one of God's laws. Who can? No man can. And so legalists love to say, well, then which ones are the most important? Which ones do I really, really, really need to keep? Which might make up for the ones I don't keep. You've got to find out which ones are the most important since you can't perfectly keep them all if you're a legalistic person like these Pharisees and Sadducees were. So they try to bring Jesus in this debate in order that his answer would surely put him in one camp or another. They can get him to land in some camp by his answer. They can categorize him and they can turn people against him. They say, oh, he's in this camp. Oh, he's in this camp. Just like we like to put people in camps nowadays, political camps, socioeconomic camps. We love to say, okay, what are you exactly? You're, okay, middle class, white, Republican, whatever. We do that. They wanted to do that with Jesus. So what camp do you land in when it comes to our commandment debate, Jesus? That's what we're trying to figure out here. Which commandment's the most important of all? Well, Jesus answers him in verses 29 through 31, and I personally think that he was probably a little bit surprised at how Jesus answered, because so far in some of these questions, Jesus hasn't really given them a straight answer. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God's what's God's. Oh, wow, we didn't, we didn't expect that. I was hoping he would just say yes or no. But here he says, which is the most important command? And I don't think he was expecting this answer because Jesus says, the most important is this. I don't think he was probably thinking, wow, he actually answered me. I thought he was going to do that jujitsu move on us again and somehow wrap us up into a pretzel or try to. And, but no, Jesus comes right out and says, the most important command is this. And guess where he quotes from again? Deuteronomy. He'll also quote from um, Leviticus here in a second. But he says, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. And it's this. This is the one from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. So he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. What is that? Well, the name comes from the very first word in that sentence, which is the, the Hebrew word for the word here is Shema. That's why they've titled that whole section the Shema, because it starts with the word here. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. Or it means also listen. Devout Jews would actually quote this twice a day. It was at the center of what they did and believed um, 
is at the center of all they did and all that they believed because it wraps up everything that makes a Jew a Jew, that makes a God follower a God follower, which is love for God and the belief that he's one, that he's the only one. It not only teaches, of course, monotheism, which means that there's one God. Mono means one. Theism is um, basically things that are of God. So one God, that's what monotheism means. But it also commands the reader to love God above all things and with all one's capacities, as you see that there. This is the beginning of true spiritual life, is it not? This is the beginning. This is how believers become believers. This is what makes a believer a a Christian. This is what makes us who we are. We love the Lord and know this is the beginning and end of what it means to be one of His, to love Him. Love Him above all things. Though our love, of course, is imperfect. Yes, it is. We long for the day when we will one day, of course, in sinless, glorified bodies, love him in perfection. My greatest moments of love that I've ever had for God, ever, still were imperfect. Don't you long for the day, don't you long for the day, I do, when my love for him will be uninhibited, undistracted, untainted by anything. Just pure, pure love. I feel it now. I have it now, but it's, it's, it's imperfect, even on my best day. But it's way more than it was, of course. And it's, well, it's alive now. It was not there when I was unsaved. It didn't exist yet. I thought it did. Had happy feelings towards God. But they were wrong. They were twisted. They were tainted. They were soiled. And it wasn't even for the one true God. It was, it, was, it was my God. Cohen's God, actually, when you scratch off the makeup, <gasps> looked just like Cohen. That was a very convenient God for me. He was, I was the center of, of his life. All he wanted to do was just, just, just love me and just let me do whatever I wanted to do. That's all, that's all that made him happy. He's a very convenient God, that God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's break these down. What do these mean? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. In Jewish understanding, the heart is the source of all your thoughts, all your words, all your, all your actions. It's an informed love. It's an intelligent love because it's the, it's the source of where all these things come from, thoughts, words, actions. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of your heart come the issues of life. The heart, is, the heart in Jewish understanding is like your deepest identity. Next, you shall love the Lord your God with all your soul. Well, this is, this is like, this is an emotional love. Let me explain why. The soul here in the text is to be understood as the seat of your emotions. Why do I think that? Well, because in Matthew 26, 38, remember what Jesus says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. 
Remember when Jesus prayed that? His emotions were from his soul, he said. It's sorrowful. So we are to also love God with all of our soul. Our, our love for God is to be an emotional love as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your mind. Now this is interesting because in the original Shema, it did not have this portion. It did not have mind. It just said heart, soul, and strength. Our Lord Jesus adds the mind here. And he can do that because he inspires scripture anyway. Just like he gave the heart of the understanding of God's commands when he said, you've heard it said to those of old. And then he quotes a command and he says, but I say to you. He's getting at what's really behind that. So loving God with all the mind is also a part of the Shema. The mind is the power of the will, the intention, the purpose. We even say things like, I've made up my mind to do this. So we are also to love God with all of our mind, showing that it's a willing love. And then lastly, you shall love the Lord your God with all your strength. A reference to physical energy, of course. Your actions show you love the Lord. So our love for the one true God is to be from the heart, an intellectual love, from the soul, an emotional love, from the mind, a willing love, and from with our strength, an active love, an all-encompassing love. That's why Jesus included the words, with all, before each one of these. With all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it means to be a Christian. Really, that's what it means to be a Christian, to love God above all things and with all of your being. Those of us who are in the faith, who've been converted, who've been brought out of darkness and placed into God's marvelous light, who've been born again, we know we're not capable of keeping this command, are we? We're not capable of keeping this command without help. We actually talked about this in Sunday school this morning. We're not capable of this love without the Lord working in our hearts to change our hearts. I mentioned this also earlier, that St. Augustine once said, Lord, grant, I'm sorry, Lord, command what you will and grant what you command. Meaning, command me to do whatever you want me to do, but then give me the power to do it. He understood and knew himself very well. He understood and knew the scriptures well. At least in that, in that part. We don't, know, we don't agree with everything St. Augustine taught, but he was right on that part that he knew, unless the Lord gives me power and want to do this, I won't do it. The Lord has to change our wants because you always go with your greatest want. You always go with your greatest want. I told you the guys, I told you guys about the time I got held up at gunpoint. Ten seconds before he walked up, I did not want to give him my wallet. Once he held the gun to me, I wanted to give him my wallet. I went with my greatest want. I wanted my life more than I wanted my money. I was very motivated to give him my money at that point. I really wanted to. We always go with our greatest wants. That's why God has to change our wants. 
When you get the new heart, your wants change. You want to love the Lord. But God has to convert our hearts and give us that want. When we begin to love God above all things, doing this first commandment, we'll find that we also have a natural tendency to do the second part, which is to love others. You can't love others rightly the way God does without first having the heart of God within you, without first having been made right with God and able to love him rightly. Because the second command flows from the first one. First commandment is what we call vertical, going up and down. My love for God goes up and down. When I have that ability and when that's right, when I'm doing that, then I naturally love others horizontally in my life here. When this love happens, then it naturally creates this love for others around me. This is why Jesus followed the Shema with saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself because it flows out of it naturally. It's like a natural reflex, like when the doctor hits your knee, your leg kicks. A right love for God creates a right love for man. The reason why Jesus said loving God and loving others sums up everything in the law is because we've already seen that in the Ten Commandments. Have you thought about this before? Have you noticed this, rather? In the Ten Commandments, they're broken up into two parts. Really, the first through the, the, first through the fourth focuses on God. And the fifth through the tenth focus on man. How we relate to God is one through four. How we relate to man is five through six. Have you ever noticed that? Think about it. Think about one through four. What are they? One, you shall, love, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make unto yourself a graven image, no idols. You shall not take his name in vain. His name is special. And remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. His day is special. It's all about God in those. This is how you relate to me, one through four. Five through ten, honor your father and your mother, people around you. Don't murder people around you. Don't commit adultery with people around you. Don't steal from people around you. Don't lie to other people around you. And don't covet your neighbor's goods. Those who live right by you, right next to you, the ones around you, they deal with man. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus would say, the greatest command, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Love love others. God and others, that's always been the focus. It's been the focus of the Ten Commandments from the very beginning. So, what we find then is that Jesus tells us, we can word it two different ways. True love for man flows out of true love for God. True love for man flows out of true love for God. Or you can word it this way as well. Unless you, unless you truly love God, you can't truly love others. Unless you truly love God, you can't truly love others. You can word it either one of those ways. Show me someone who could really care less about the salvation of other people. Show me someone who could really care less about being compassionate to other people. Show me someone who could really care less about being a representative of God to other people. And I'll show you someone who doesn't love God either. 
love for God is supposed to define us and show that it's real love by how we live. Right? If I don't live as if I love God, then you should have no reason to believe that I love God. Right? Jesus even says of false prophets, you'll know them by their fruit. Look at their life. By what their life is producing, that's how you know they're false prophets. You can use that same way of doing things by saying, look at someone's life. You see no evidence of love for God? You know you're looking at someone who doesn't love God. And of course, what people will lob at us is, you're being judgmental. Like I've told you before, it's not judgmental to look at a red barn and say, the barn is red. I'm not making any judgments. Jesus told us in Matthew 7 to look at people's life and make assessments. He told us. In this same chapter, he says, judge not that you'll be not judged. <laughs> in the same chapter, he says, Look at false prophets. You'll know them by their fruit. So by Jesus saying, you shall not judge, he does not mean don't look at others and make assessments of their life. That's not what he means. When he says don't judge, of course, he means don't look down, don't look down your nose at others and say, I'm better than you. That's what he means by don't judge. Because right after he says don't judge, he says, of course, get the log out of your eye before you try to get the speck of sawdust out of your brothers. It's don't be hypocritical. And it is hypocritical to say, I'm better than you. I don't do those things. Yes, you do. If you're acting like that. So, it's not judgmental either to look, make assessments of someone's life and say, I see, no, I see no evidence of love for God. Therefore, you're not a God lover. Not a true God lover. Love for God is supposed to define us and show itself as real by how we live. That's why Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. That's why the opposite is also true. Paul said, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus, let him be accursed. Loving God above all is what it means to be a Christian. Well, we get to the end of the section of Mark 12 with something refreshing. It's, it's refreshing because we've not seen a reaction like this before, nor have we seen honesty like this from the Pharisees before. And honesty is very refreshing. It's very refreshing when someone's just honest, especially when it's to their own hurt. It's so refreshing. I love it when I get that from people. I'm like, wow, this is, this is rare. What's the scribe say? Look at verses 32 through 34 with me. Verses 32 through 34. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. This man was one of those religious elite. And he agrees with Jesus that he's right. Remember, he was sent to trap him. 
<laughs> a trap malfunctioned. <laughs> he was faced with Jesus speaking pure scripture, pure truth. And he could not debate with that. The man agrees with him. And Jesus said the man wasn't far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom, he said. What made this man near to the kingdom? Well, because he understood that truth is meant to affect you internally and not just externally. Very different from the scribes and the Pharisees and the other um, Sadducees as well. They were very external, weren't they? Jesus pointed that out a lot. You're like this, but inwardly you're like this. You say this, but, but this. They even taught the right things, but didn't live it out. Jesus even said to the people, listen to them. Listen to what they're saying. Obey what they're telling you, but don't do like they do. They taught, they taught the scriptures with their mouths, but didn't live it with their lives. Jesus said this man wasn't far from the kingdom of God because he understood that truth is meant to affect you at an internal level, not just an external level. He was near, Jesus said, but he was not in. He was near, but he was not in. Near isn't close enough when it comes to the kingdom. This man would have had to make a conscious choice to renounce everything in his life, everything that God hates, and to place his full faith in the revealed word of God, written in the scriptures and shown most clearly in the Messiah. This would no doubt have been the loss of everything for him, wouldn't it? Think of where he was. Think of what he did. Think of who he hung around. Think of who his bosses were. This man had a lot to lose if he followed Jesus. All of us have to set something aside when it comes to following Jesus, don't we? Jesus said, count the cost. It costs all of us something to follow Jesus. What's encouraging, though, is this. Remember Nicodemus, and remember Joseph of Arimathea. They were also Pharisees. They were also from these religious elites. They both believed. Joseph was the one getting the body down from the cross, and Nicodemus and Joseph were the one carrying the body, putting spices on it, getting it ready. They believed. They came out from that number. Do we know if this man came out from that number? We don't know. I pray that he did, though. I pray that when Jesus looked into his eyes and he said, you're not far from the kingdom, I pray that that man saw this is the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit gripped his heart and caused it to live just like he can do with anyone in this room, just like he did with me 20-plus years ago. I'm encouraged by what Jesus had to say about this man. But just like uh, I hope for him, I also hope for all of you. I hope he forsook all and followed Jesus. I hope like Paul, he counted everything as loss for the surpassing wealth 
of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord. Have you made that choice? You personally, have you made that choice? Are you willing to renounce your sins and believe that Jesus is the one way to God? Do you believe that when he died and shed his blood, that he was bearing the wrath of God on your behalf? Do you believe that he was taking the punishment that you deserve for your sins? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead, showing that the Father approved and accepted the sacrifice of the Son by raising him from the dead? Do you believe that he ever lives to make intercession for those who believe and follow him? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's coming again one day to judge the living and the dead and to create a new heavens and a new earth? By faith, do you believe those things? I pray that you would if you don't. I pray that you will if you haven't. Our faith in these things is where our love for God and love for others flows out of. Our love for God shows itself as real by what's true about our lives. I'm going to close with this. Listen to 1 John 5, it'll be up there as well. 1 John 5, 2 through 4. We'll close with this. By this we know we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. There was a time where I felt them as so burdensome. When I got saved... I felt them as so delightful. Verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Amen. Father, we're grateful for these wonderful truths. We're grateful for the fact that you speak the truth so clearly in a way that we can so understand. And Lord, I'm also thankful for the fact that you give the Holy Spirit to those who believe to regenerate their hearts and souls to cause their mind to be open and alive, to cause their hearts to be open and living and to grasp these truths as priceless, precious, more precious than gold, more to be desired than silver. Lord, we love you. Please, please, we pray, apply these eternal truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.